Welcome to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. And if you haven't been to it yet, check out our newly updated website. We've got the entire library of episodes out there, some cool new resources, such as Tim's nerdy glossary of behavioral science terms. And yes, they are nerdy, but that's okay. I know you'll like it. A place to sign up for alerts on new episodes. And we've got some cool new merch you can order. Think about that. It will help you bring the light of behavioral grooves into your everyday life. <laughs> I'm feeling like there might be a choir of angels back there. <laughs> Think about this, it. You could, you could yeah. have a, a behavioral grooves mug that brings you joy every single day. You could wear a t-shirt that sends that, that joy to everybody else in your life. It's just a... It's the beacon of light. I think that's what we should rename. Uh, the, the And then it can become a priming tool that just continues to affect you, even when it's just in the room, just knowing that it's in your in your cabinet, never used. <laughs> it can still bring you joy. <laughs> Hidden, so nobody else knows how much of a nerd you are. There you go. Yes, I like it. <laughs> okay, but in this episode, we talk with researcher and overall curious guy, Seth Stevens-Davidovitz. Now, Seth is the author of Everybody Lies, and some great research was recently published by him in the New York Times about how our Google searches indicated when we felt like we were actually coming out of the pandemic. Pretty cool stuff. Seth received his PhD in economics from Harvard, and he has used Google searches to understand a wide variety of topics, including racism, depression, anxiety, child abuse, hateful mobs, the science of humor, sexual preference, and sexual insecurity. Oh my gosh, Tim. Uh, that's just part of this. It is just some amazing <laughs> research, and we are very, very lucky to talk with him. Yeah. And of course, our conversation covered much of his recent work on how Google searches are significantly more accurate than what we post on Facebook or ever answer in surveys. Yeah. It's very cool work. And remember that this episode is just the interview, that the uh, episode following this will be our grooving session where Tim and I riff on what we thought was meaningful in our conversation with Seth. So this might be a good time also to give a quick shout out to Logan Yuri, who was a guest on Behavioral Grooves in episode 205, where we talked about her book on dating. Logan referred us to her old pal, Seth, and we are really grateful for the introduction. We had a fantastic time speaking with Seth. And we really hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. With that, we encourage you to sit back in a comfortable chair with a fine glass of, if you believe it, it's not a lie, and enjoy our conversation with Seth. Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. And we're going to get started with the speed round. So we want to first know, would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite musician or favorite economist? Musician, not even close. <laughs> not even close. Oh, I, I like how, how quick that was. Who who would that favorite musician be? Is there a is there a well, my favorite musician died a couple of years ago, Leonard Cohen. Oh, favorite yeah. living musician. Maybe I'd go Bruce Springsteen. I'm a big Paul Simon fan, but I've heard he's a total asshole. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've heard the same. Like he's just, you know, there's this amazing charm in his work, but I heard he's just a brute, basically yeah. a, a bully, yeah. you know. But I'm a huge Springsteen fan, and I think I've also heard he's a nice guy, so and a fun guy. So I think that would be an extremely entertaining dinner. Yeah, I would yeah. having Bruce and then bringing uh, Leonard back from the dead and having him as part of that conversation would be great. I remember. I read somewhere where Leonard Cohen had a conversation with uh, Paul Zimmerman. What's his stage name? Uh, Minnesota Bob Dylan, right? And Leonard was talking about writing Hallelujah and how long that took him to write and all the iterations he went through. And Dylan just said, yeah, I wrote something in like 20 minutes. And he was like, how, how do you do that? It was, yeah. I thought that was really fascinating. All right. It is amazing with music. I mean, you guys are more music experts than me, but that people can write songs in such little time. Yeah. Like it's one, it seems like it doesn't happen right away, but if you work on the craft for five, 10 years, 
like a lot of people will say some of these like amazing songs, not Leonard Cohen, he takes forever, but like <laughs> a lot of other artists will say like these amazing songs that blew your mind. They wrote in 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, and those, but those are also sort of the exceptions. You know, I don't, I don't think any uh, songwriter would say that that becomes the rule, you know, that yeah. that becomes the norm. Yeah. The, the Graham Nash story about writing a song called Just a Song Before I Go was a bet. They were 15 minutes away from leaving the, his house in Maui to go to the airport. And somebody said, I'll bet you a hundred bucks that you can't write a hit song in the next 15 minutes. And he's like, I'll take that bet. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> he did. It became a top 10 hit, you know. I, oh, I hate to say it. I think you also, I'm a huge Dylan fan as well. I think you notice sometimes that his songs could have used a few more minutes. You know, <laughs> you know, it, he's such a genius that he gets away with it. That you know, he ha but like you know, Leonard Cohen, you listen to one of his songs, and there's not one word that like yeah. could be changed and could be improved. They're just so perfect. Yeah. And Dylan, they're genius I, on almost another level than Leonard Cohen's songs. The genius is is just that perfect, that great. But yeah. Like you know nothing about music, would be like. I, maybe I could even tweak that line and make it a little better. <laughs> you know, he throws in some cliches that just like yeah. are necessary. Like it's, they're not perfect. Uh, they're genius and not perfect. I think Leonard Cohen at heart was a poet, right? Yeah. Oh, he started as a poet. Well, he started, really, exactly. I mean, that that is beginning. That's where his true passion was. And poets agonize over every word and the making sure that it's the best word to fit with what they're trying to convey. And I think that was just the mentality, the mindset that Leonard brought to his craft. So we, we, yeah. we could come back to this, but I don't want to wait. Do you have a favorite <laughs> Leonard Cohen song? Is, is there, is it possible to have such a it's thing? like asking a parent, a favorite child, I would say. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I really like the song Alexandra leaving. Not one of his most famous songs. Just so beautiful. Oh my God. Just absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Heartbreaking. And then famous blue raincoat, like a like one of the older songs, just really like intense, an intense song about like a guy who, yeah. his wife and stole his wife and mysterious guy is that that's really, that was really great. Yeah. yeah uh, and and, and you know, compact that whole story into just these, you know, 20 lines is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's the thing is his, songs just like have these huge meanings and then they're in a few minutes like he's talking about you know it's suzanne he's talking about jesus and religion and the body and the mind and it's like uh, and a particular woman and yeah. sanity or lack of sanity and it's all in a few minutes yeah and and it really is fundamentally like suzanne is about this relationship it's about this his relationship with this woman and all of a sudden it it, it unfolds all these things like you just said all these topics that still somehow derive back to his relationship with Suzanne. Wow, how did he do that? And at the same time, also just like true things that she's serving him tea and oranges. Like she yeah. actually, yes. he's like the actual scene, we were sitting by the church in Montreal and she served me tea and oranges. And yes. all that made me think of Jesus and children for love and like all these other things. Yeah, or, or and the tea and oranges that come all the way from China. Yeah. Like, why does that matter? It matters so much in the yeah, song. That, yeah, you kind of feel like what? Uh, yeah, that he really is seeing. He sees things in, in this scene that like a normal person wouldn't see, but like you kind of get what that, that this has so much more meaning beyond just like trying to yeah. want to have sex and not being able to have sex with this one, <laughs> 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 <It's really laughs> which is the underlying story, really. So when you think about it. If I would have read that song, I'd be like, I want to have sex. She doesn't want to have sex with me. Like, I don't know what <laughs> like, And done deal. Thank you. There's, there's, there's stuff from China. There's crazy outfits, you know, Salvation Army. There are children looking out for love. Yeah. So uh, and you, you, you bring up this idea of, of Cohen's earlier work and then some of his later work. And I think there's a really interesting dynamic with Cohen is, A, his voice changes. Right, I mean, he he wasn't I think that deep. cigarette though. Yeah, I don't know what it was from. I smoked so much cigarette, so many cigarettes that it literally just changed my voice. I mean, it literally he go. It feels like he's down an octave, and I don't know if that's the right term, Tim. But I mean, he is much deeper baritone. 
in his later years than he ever was starting off. And it just, it adds this different dynamic to the songs and different pieces. And anyway, it's a whole piece. That, and the gravel, the gravel in his voice yeah, becomes yeah. more prevalent. And I think that that's a cigarette thing, but it adds, it's, it's sort of like Tom Waits. Like, yeah. like you get, you get more story. You get more impression from just the sound of his voice, not even just beyond the words. It's fantastic. All right, guys, this was supposed to be a speed round. I, <laughs> well, you asked how we, it going, and then that. I know, we, but, but we digress. And so, actually, I, I will have to say this is a record for the first question. We've had long speed rounds before, but this is just the first question. We haven't even gotten to question number two here. So I'm going to well, hopefully maybe we're ask. Maybe ourselves after Leonard Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> topics from it's be anticlimactic. I, I know, it's all going downhill from here. I, I hope these next ones are easy and maybe don't get into a, such a long uh, discussion. Oh, maybe, I don't maybe know. not. I don't know. I don't all right. know. It, could. it could. All right. Well, all right, Seth. Coffee or tea? Which would you prefer? Uh, it, it, does the tea come from oranges and is there any <laughs> in China? <laughs> morning. I, I like that. I'm morning coffee, evening tea, no caffeine. So pr pretty close. I'd say probably coffee. I would like a little more. All right. All right. Okay. We'll take okay. that. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, so would you prefer to learn a new language or a new instrument? I'd prefer to have the ability to learn either a new language. Or <laughs> I have no skill in either area, but if I did have that ability, I'd say a new instrument. Yeah. What Very do you think good. it would be? Guitar. Pretty standard. I. Oh, it's great. I try. I played the trumpet as a kid, and I sucked at it. And I just have no ear for music, although I love music, uh, but just no ability whatsoever. My family loved music so much that my dad tried to be a rock and roll star despite having like less talent than anyone you've ever met. Like he literally moved to California, gave it a go with zero talent. Like his voice is horrific, is no rhythm, no nothing. And I, I think I, he's like, I, you like music as much as I do, but like we can't try this. <laughs> Just <laughs> was he trying to be in a punk band? Because that might have worked. Uh, <laughs> no, was, he was a big Bob Dylan fan himself. He was kind of trying to copy that folk thing. I don't know. Oh, there you go. Well, you know, Dylan isn't exactly a star singer. <laughs> but he has an ear for he, his voice yes, he might not be great, but he understands rhythm. My dad just understands none of it has none of it. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Hopefully <laughs> dad isn't listening it. to the show. Here we go. There you go. No, All he right. didn't the first to admit it. Yeah. All right. Last question. Are people more honest with their friends or with Google? Oh, Google, that's the theme of basically my life's work. So uh, <laughs> why? Think, uh, why is that? Yeah, help, help us understand your life's work here in, in, in a couple minutes. <laughs> okay, so my life's work is how you can understand people from their Google searches. And people tell things to Google that they don't tell to other people, that they don't tell family members, they don't tell doctors, they don't tell acquaintances, they don't tell friends, they don't tell surveys. Uh, they kind of pour their heart out onto Google. So, you know, they type things there, there have historically been more search for porn than weather on Google, even though a lot of people don't say that they watch porn, everyone says they check the weather. And uh, you kind of see all these topics where people are telling Google things that they're not telling anybody else about, you know, sex, their sexual insecurities, their mental health problems, anxiety, depression, disturbing things, racism, suffering from child abuse, like all these areas. You know, people tell Google kind of everything uh, in part because they have an incentive to because they need information. So they get the answers they need from Google when they're really struggling and in part because there's no judgment from Google, whereas there frequently is judgment from our friends. So, uh, you know, if you're I've done research, if you're living in an area, sadly, there are parts of the country and certainly the world where it's still hard to be gay and people don't tell surveys they're gay. They might not tell their friends they're gay. They might lose their friendships if they say they're gay, but they search things like gay porn on Google, knowing there's not going to be any judgment and knowing they're going to get something they want uh, fr from that. So you can kind of see in the data that there's a lot more gay porn searches in parts of the country and the world where people's then you get from other methods where it's hard to be gay. Uh, so that's kind of just all these examples where there's uh, more truth in, in Google than there is in what people say. Does it matter? I'm just wondering, is that okay? 
I mean, do, do we need to be in judgment of I'm going to tell my friends one thing, but I'm going to do something else in, in Google? Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe on some areas, maybe it's okay that there is a, a difference. There's kind of a, a sense in which th- there are ways in which lying is bad. There's some sense in which lying can sometimes be good. So sometimes we lie and we say like nice things about other people, you know, not mean thoughts we have about other people or ju- judgmental thoughts we have. And maybe it's better that we keep those thoughts to ourselves or keep those thoughts to Google and, you know, don't tell, don't, don't say them out, out loud. Yeah. That's, that's Tim and my entire relationship. So, you know, that's, <laughs> we, we go here, you know, and I have Googled, you know, how many ways are there to, to hate Tim Hulahan and, you know, it, it <laughs> It, it pops up it zero, feels- but, you know, <laughs> I need to add something to the literature, I think, there. Anyway, no, just joking. Just joking, folks. Tim and I, didn't, we, that's not how this I, works. I did this study where I talk about the difference between social media and search. So social media is kind of talking to your friends. So all your friends kind of see what you're saying. And I looked at how people describe their husbands in these different sources. Mm. So people say, like, my husband is on social media. What's the top way they complete that phrase? And I think number one post my husband is on social media my husband is the best mm. and then my best friend amazing so cute adorable like that's kind of the view of husbands you get when all your friends see it and then what happens on google when nobody's seeing what you're saying about your husband and you need information to maybe help a situation it's like my husband is a jerk what do i do my husband i think my husband's cheating wow. my husband's annoying uh, <laughs> a totally different view of husband's public social media and private search uh which is that's actually probably a little bit disturbing because I think that's kind of a bad thing that yeah. in contemporary society, I think a lot of people feel bad because they think everybody else has better lives than they do. And the fact that our friends frequently tell, give up, show us a glorified view of their own life uh, is probably not a great thing for society. So to, you know, it's, it's, if your friends, a lot of your friends sometimes think their husbands are, annoying and a jerk and mean and they can't stand them and they're telling you on social media or in their conversations my husband's so cute my husband's the best isn't he amazing look at this adorable thing they did then that might make you and and your husband you know or or wife or partner like sometimes is annoying the hell out of you you might feel like ah you know i'm this horrible marriage woe is me everybody else has so much easier and maybe society would be better if people were more open about some of the struggles they're dealing with. Yeah, that that social media persona that we put out there about it's this Instagram life, right? You you put pictures out of your vacations and the smiling, happy faces when we're on vacation, when just the minute before that photo was taken, everybody's fighting and pissed off and mad at each other. And we don't post those pictures, right? We don't even, sometimes (laughs) we don't even take those pictures, right? We try to forget that. No. But we we do put this idealized life out there. And to your point, I think there's probably some negative connotations because when we compare ourselves to what we see, we all of a sudden believe that my life, God, I have to be in the lower half of, of the population because everybody I see is living these beautiful, well-curated lives that look just angelic, like they're out of some romance novel or wonderful movie and my life is the day-to-day struggles of changing baby diapers and you know my husband who's sitting watching you know sports net not helping with the dishes and all the other factors that go into this and so i think there's this discrepancy between real life and what we present in social media and the, there is a danger in my opinion i think it, it probably agreeing with what you just said that that can lead to some false ideals that people put on and burdens that they put on themselves. Yeah. And this isn't a new issue. It's probably become worse with social media, but friends have always been showing off the other friends and, you know, not necessarily giving an honest view of life. So high school, I was in high school before social media existed. And I think I, like a lot of people, was insecure about my life and I wasn't getting invited to parties every weekend and was like, you know, thinking I'm the biggest loser in the world or I wasn't having as many dates as maybe I felt I should. And I 
and feeling like I was, you know, totally messed up in the romantic department. And I think, you know, it wasn't like ever, all my friends were being like, I'm not getting to invited to parties either. Or I'm not having the romantic <laughs> life that I would like, which I think looking back on it was really common. And, you know, I wasn't quite the outlier that I thought I was. Uh, and this before social media has probably become worse with social media. There's a line in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's, it's popular in Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. Mm. The same point. And I kind of said the 21st century big data version of that is don't compare your Google searches to other people's Instagram posts. If you're like searching, you have these health problems, your husband or wife is annoying you, you have these insecurities, you have anxiety, you have whatever, uh, you can't stand your boss, you want to quit your job. Uh, you know, like keep in mind that a lot of other people are making the same searches, uh, even if it doesn't seem that way on when you browse through Instagram. Yeah, it's it's tough. I, I, it reminds me of work that Dan Ariely and Nina Mazar and uh, Francesca Gino did on on cheating. That that everybody likes to have this public image, like I don't cheat. That wouldn't be me. But in studies, he found that lots and lots, most of us cheat to to some small degree, and very very few of us have the are really big cheaters. How does that? Is there any correlation? to the lying story like to pretty much all of us lie to some degree but there's very very few big liars how, how would you characterize that Seth? That, that sounds right to me i mean obviously there are pathological liars uh we've seen you know you've seen famous examples of that people who uh you know there's this story this woman moved to new york city and just said she was a wealthy heiress and just like started you know going to all these parties and staying in hotels and like just pretend living an entirely fake life to try to hang out with celebrities and it all came crashing down around her. And that's like a ne next level lying. I think most of us don't move to a new city and just uh, <laughs> pretend we're a, you know, a billionaire. Uh, so, you know, and then you, you've seen it and uh, you know, there's a difference between like investment managers, probably every investment manager might tell their investment story in a certain way to make themselves look good. So you mm. have focus on the better years or you, you, you kind of can present the numbers in ways to make yourself look good. Like we had up years, you know, eight out of 10 years, but the down years really bit worse and you don't mention that, but then there's Bernie Madoff who just yeah. makes his numbers and yeah. makes lying to a new level. So I don't know that we can say that everybody lies to the same, you know, to the same degree. There are outliers in the lying department, but I do think that, uh, you know, probably everybody lies. And a lot of it is that we lie to ourselves. Mm. frequently there's there's some work by robert trivers that we basically all engage in self-deception in some ways to be better liars to other people because people like we have an it, there's it's an advantage if people think highly of you if they think you're really competent so if you believe you're more competent than you are then you'll be, have a better chance convincing other people that you're more competent than you are and that will be to your uh, to your advantage. Uh, so, you know, if, if, if you think like I'm an above average employee, like then when you go to that negotiation, if you're to some degree, you're not an above average employee, but you, in your head, you think you are, and you're telling all these people that you're so great, which is kind of lying, but it's also because based on lying to yourself, well, then you might be more likely to get a job to get a raise. Interesting. Kind of a, a positive aspect of the Dunning Kruger effect, right? So the, 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 the less <laughs> yeah. I know, um, about myself, it might actually help me out. We just interviewed Shankar Vedantam, who just the, his new book about basically self-deception, this idea that we that self-deception can actually be useful. And there's this idea that we are always to a certain degree, there are certain things that we just don't want to know about ourselves. And there's a positive outcome of that. And I hear that's what what you're saying is that this idea that the lies that we tell are sometimes, you know, the lies to ourselves in order to help ourselves convey that lies to the outward world. And so that seems to pair up with what we're hearing um, from some others, too. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the TV show Seinfeld. And in one episode, Barry Seinfeld has to take a lie detector. It's an absurd show, episode. He has to take a lie detector test to convince 
someone that he doesn't like the show Melrose Place, even though he does like the show Melrose Place. (laughs) 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 Premise. But he's like, how am I going to pass this lie detector test? And he goes, oh, wait, I have access to one of the most duplicitous, deceptive minds of all time, his best friend, George Costanza, (laughs) a pathological liar. So So Jerry meets with George. And he said, what should I do? I have to pass this lie detector test, but you know, there's, there's seemingly no way. And George says, there's only one thought I want to leave you with. It's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that a thesis in your work, Seth? <laughs> I, I, I would like to write a book just justifying everything that George Costanza said. I think there's some, that I, it gets to what we were talking about. This idea that self-deception uh, can be a positive for the self-deceiver because he's he or she is able to kind of convince other people, better convince other people of these that he or she has these positive traits. Whether it's being a great driver or being a great employee or not liking Melrose Place. Uh, <laughs> in the case. Yeah. So, so does does your research talk about what? people lie about do do you know i mean is there are there certain areas or topics that we lie more about than others yeah so some of them you just know so i did a study on how much sex people have and it's like <laughs> if you ask people in surveys basically men say they have heterosexual sex like t- on average twice a week women say on average once a week like already there's like a <laughs> Like a, we know somebody's not telling something truth. isn't right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. One way you can test this is they say how frequently they use condoms. So you kind of do the math and men say heterosexual men say they're using 1.6 billion condom sex. Heterosexual women say they're using 1.1 billion condom sex. We actually know data on how many condoms are basically produced and sold. And it's 600 million. So it's basically, <laughs> oh. everybody's uh, and it's like, I've done some more research. It's not just, they're lying about how much they have safe sex. It's lying, just sex in general. And then, like if you look at Google searches where people are more honest, the number one complaint about a marriage by far is sexless marriage. Mm. Uh, the number one complaint that everybody has about a partner, whether it's boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, or wife, is that the, the partner won't have sex with me. That beats the second complaint that the partner won't text me back. Uh, and <laughs> wow. But yeah, wow. so you kind of see like on Google, this totally different view of, again, people and relationships that you're not necessarily getting on surveys. And then, you know, that's kind of an area where I went to pretty intensively sexuality, because that's an area where, you know, there's a lot of discomfort. There's a lot of things people aren't going to talk about. I talked about, maybe it's not going to surprise anybody, but the number of searches that men have about improving a certain, the size of a certain organ in their body. Not something that I think people talk about in the day to day. They don't post on social media. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm sorry, just kind of my imagination, just like, man, I had a really bad day. My penis wasn't big enough. Yeah. Where does yeah, that go? So I think I, I, I found that it's the number one body part that men ask questions about their own penis and how to make it bigger. And they make more questions how to make their penis bigger than how to make an omelet tune a guitar or change a tire. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like, it's like really, it's just, all, it's just like such a common theme on, on Google searches, uh, which that one's like kind of confirming to some degree, the obvious, but again, you're going to have a lot of lying in the day to day. That's not something that most men are like. Well, and that's weird because you can get better at tuning a guitar or making an omelet. Like by tuning a guitar, you know, over and over again, you can actually get better at it. Yeah. But I don't think there's anything you can do about your organ size. Yeah. There's a business out there to be had because obviously are, people are, are searching are for it. And on yeah. that, uh, on that topic, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I was uh, wondering if, if maybe the difference between men and women on those surveys about the number of sex, if the men are counting all the porn that they're looking at. And so that gets uh, counted <laughs> in that they don't talk about and right. their wives don't know about anyway. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, I think that's another area where you also have lying to oneself. My guess is people like round up in their own head, how much sex they're having frequently. Wow. Yeah. Uh, 
like if, if you know if you're at 22 it automatically that becomes 50 phenomenon uh to you know round up i think men round up in in a lot of areas so uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, not to get away from this incredibly engaging conversation about penis size, uh, <laughs> we talked earlier about some of the work that you were doing about uh, where you're born impacts your life. And I found this particularly interesting. Would you mind sharing some of your research findings around that? Well, that's actually, uh, so this is, so, um, it's my next book. It's work a lot by Raj Chetty at Stanford University, where they've had tax records and they found that the town you're born dramatically affects like your life outcome, where how, how good a college you end up going to, how much money you earn. And you could say that's just a correlation. Is it causal? And they do something really clever. They compare basically families that moved. Mm. Basically families that moved, so the one kid spent many more years in a, a younger kid spent many more years in that new city. And they found that certain cities, if the young kid spent more years in that area, they do much better as an adult, so kind of proving that it's causal. And one of the things that's really interesting, what is it about these cities that have such a big effect? There's towns, really zip codes, or they get to pretty small neighborhoods. And one thing they found is like the adults in that city really matter. So if you have adults that are more educated, if you have adults that are better citizens in various ways, they vote more, they take the census more, they have more so what's called social capital, uh, you're more likely to do, be do better, I think, adult mo role models seem to play a big role in how we turn out. It's not usually talked about. They've also done studies where they found that if girls, young girls move to a town at, at the right age with a lot of female, adult female scientists, they're much more likely to become scientists themselves and not male scientists. Like mm. female, little girls moves to an area with a lot of adult female scientists, they're more likely to become scientists themselves. They've done studies if an African-American boy moves to a town with a lot of African-American fathers around, not necessarily their own father, the other fathers in town, there are black fathers, they're more likely to have better life outcomes. The other wow. adult area, wow. really, really important in how we turn out, not something usually thought about. We think about you know, the role of parents themselves. We think about the role of teachers. We don't think about who are the other people you're uh, showing kind of your kids. I think one of the reasons adult role models are so important is like parents, the influence of parents is complicated because kids sometimes hate their parents or sometimes <laughs> go through stages where they hate their parents. They rebel right. against their parents uh, and they want to do the exact opposite of what their parents do. So your parents, a scientist, you say, well, I'm going to be a rock star because yeah. you know, I want to do something different from what my parent does. Or if you're whatever, they, you can go either follow your parent or go the opposite direction. But like the other people around town, I think most kids think of as cool. So if the other people around town are great citizens, they're great parents, they're scientists, that's gonna really help your kids. Or not even the other people around town, the other people you, the friends you introduce to your kids, like to some degree, one of the things I took from this uh, research is you can kind of outsource parenting a little bit. <laughs> uh, like don't give all the advice yourself because your kids may rebel against it, but kind of subtly put your kids in the vicinity of people you want them to turn out. <laughs> Sounds uh, a little manipulative. <laughs> but I like I like that idea, right? This idea that you are are curating the people that your children are being introduced to yes. to make sure that they have a better life outcome based on a number of different factors. So you, you're like saying, look, these are the role models that you can have, not by calling them role models, but by just having them be part of their life. However, you know, tangential to that, you're, you're doing some really good with that curation of who's in their lives and who do they look up to and who do they see as these are successful people. And this is what that looks like. I think there's a power in that. I, mean, I don't think it's any more manipulative than reading a book to a kid, hoping that they get really interested <laughs> in reading. Like you're all, everything a parent is doing to some degree, lots of the things parents are doing are trying to, you know, encourage them, getting them a chemistry set, hoping that now they'll be related <laughs> to science. Like there are all kinds of things that parents do uh, that are trying to affect how their kids turn out. So to, uh, you know, put them in the vicinity of other people who they're going to admire and, 
and what Zeta says works, that if you put your young girl in the vicinity of female scientists, she's going to be more likely to be a scientist. So it yeah. may, may work better than getting her a chemistry set uh, at, at the right age. So it's, 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 it's data proven manipulative. Sure. But <laughs> what isn't manipulative when you're trying to mold your kid in a certain way, yeah. uh, it's not even molding. You're trying to influence them in ways that they turn out having what you would consider better lives than worse lives. And I think most parents would say like, I don't want to necessarily introduce my kids to drug addicts at a young, <laughs> uh, if they're going to think those drug addicts are really cool, uh, that could turn them on a bad path. So uh, we kind of do this already, but maybe the data suggests we could do it even more. John Levy talks about uh, power versus influence and, and the, the difference between power and influence is that power is about control and influence is about guiding. And I, I can certainly buy into the idea that this, these sorts of uh, situations are about guiding and, you know, inter like you said, introducing, you know, the, your daughter to the chemistry set is different than mandating that she has to, you know, take chemistry that that's, that's totally different. Yeah. I, Anyway, I think that's a really fascinating piece of information, and I think it's going to be uh, impactful. At least I'm thinking already like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to make sure that we really invite over our smartest friends uh, when our kids are around. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. Um, but I'm not um, coming anymore, I guess. <laughs> I would say if all of a sudden Tim stops being invited over after this podcast. <laughs> Seth, you pretty much nailed it. I think there's no more invitations to Kurt's house at this point. Talk about the truth in data. Just look oh, at there you go. before and after Kurt learned about this stuff. <laughs> Seth, tell us, so you, you just teed up the idea. You're working on a new book. Can you can you share with us? Like at least give us a little hint about about yeah. what you're working on. So the data is the book is how you can use data to make better life decisions. So the thesis of the book, Moneyball, is a famous book and was turned into a Hollywood movie on how baseball teams use data analytics to improve how they were run. And the idea is like our intuition lets us down, and we have to use the data to really know who's going to be a good player or where this player should stand on the field or you know, how players could get better. And mo the Moneyball philosophy has transformed other sports, basketball, football has transformed certain firms, uh, Silicon Valley, Wall Street. But I would argue in our personal lives, we tend to still use our intuition. So if we're deciding whom to marry or how to date or how to pick a career or how to parent, we kind of just wing it a little bit. And mm -hmm. I'm arguing that these enormous data sets that allowed us to understand baseball at a different level now are on are allowing us to understand kind of the biggest areas of life. And we can do, you know, things a little differently based on data. So live more evidence-based lives. So I'm calling this kind of money ball for your life. So one example is of money ball for your life is outsourced parenting. So <laughs> <laughs> and there are lots of different examples uh, in, in many arenas where I think studies are showing us kind of, you know, really interesting things that, that people might not know. Yeah. I think it's interesting though, when we think about, Moneyball and and being able to use data to in, improve my baseball team or my organization, a variety of different factors there. I would be hard pressed for people to necessarily glom on to this idea that I'm going to use a data set to choose who I get married to. I think it's a harder sell for some reasons, but obviously there's some real good information there. So how do we how do you, how are you getting people to integrate? Like on yeah, I, I'm gonna not just go off of my gut feel on some of these major decisions that feel like they are gut feel at the core of what they are. Well, I'm noticing that people are like intrigued by my advice. Like Kurt, you said, you're going to now think more about who you, uh, yeah. your kids do. I've disturbingly found out, I've talked about some of the research on what makes a successful relationship. And I think my girlfriend may be using this data to break up with me. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Oh. And people do take this advice seriously because I have some of the qualities she has noticed that do not predict long-term happiness in relationships. So I kind of <laughs> oh. wish to intro her the chapter. 
<laughs> but that kind of goes against Kurt's point that nobody's going to follow this this advice. Uh, I, I, yeah, that, there's a point there. I, oh. I, I take that <laughs> back. Oh, snap. Man, I think oh. I believe in the data so much that if the data tells her to break up with me, I kind of almost want her to do it. I'm that convinced in the value of data analysis. So, Well, uh, you're a card-carrying rationalist. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. So. And you and you you'd like to see at least on some major life decisions you'd like to see more people being rational, relying on data, yeah, uh, than than uh, yeah. In, intuition yeah. and, and that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. and to the fact that it can improve, demonstratively improve people's outcomes in their lives, that's a good thing, right? If we know in advance that this person who I'm totally heads over heel with right now, but the likelihood is that that will end in some sort of fiery disaster, then all right, maybe it gives me pause and maybe I need to be thinking about this from a different perspective. And I think there are so many times when we go with that intuition that we go with that gut feel and in the long run, it isn't the right thing to do. And so the more that we can get people to acknowledge that, I think there's some power in there. And it goes back to that self-deception conversation that we had, right? I mean, are we deceiving ourselves and how long can that deception last? If that deception can last forever, fine, so be it. But if that deception will sometime erode in the future, I'm, I might be more interested in looking at the research that you're talking about. So I, I think that evidence from dating to some degree has a nice message and a message that some parents may even tell their kids, which is, the, the evidence from like dating sites, like OkCupid, people have studied OkCupid or other dating sites, and they found that people try to date others which, with traits that I would call shiny. So conventionally attractive people, tall men, like there's a huge be benefit in dating. Tall men just get way more matches than shorter men. And I say that as a shorter man myself, uh, which that's actually one one way I'm hoping this data will help people like me that I'm trying to <laughs> uh, this instinct. But so, so like, you know, uh, conventionally attractive people, taller men, wealthier people, people with like sexy occupations, uh, like people are much more likely to date lawyers, which is considered sexy, but not accountants, which is considered unsexy. People are much more likely to try to date someone who reminds them of themselves. So someone is 11% more likely to match with another person if they share the same initials, like, which seems a little ridiculous. And then, so like on dating sites, we're particularly, we're really drawn to people who kind of grab our, have these attention grabbers, a cool job, money, a beauty, height. But then if you look at the research where they've tracked couples long-term and how happy they are, these shiny traits don't correlate with happiness at all. So nobody, you're no more likely to be happy with someone who's conventionally beautiful or of a certain height or of a certain occupation or shares your initials or other kind of superficial traits. So I think one of the main lessons I took from data is you really want to try to overrule your draw to these shiny objects that to some degree are tricking you uh, and aren't going to lead to long-term happiness. And also there's kind of an interesting corollary with Moneyball. So Moneyball, similarly, like baseball was obsessed with people who looked the part, who looked like a baseball player. And the Oakland A's had success by going after undervalued assets who didn't have these shiny traits, who looked kind of more conventional or a little overweight, sometimes were missing a finger. Like they just, there was something a little off about them, but they were just as likely to be good baseball players. And I think there's something similar in dating where it's, there's so much competition for people with these shiny traits. Uh, people are conventionally attractive. Like it's, you know, and I think a lot of people spend so much energy trying to win over these dates with of people with traits that everybody's competing over when they're no more likely to make you happy. So you can have a much better dating experience if you don't put so much emphasis on some of these traits and, you know, cast a wider net and then find someone who you really do like and has, you know, better 
is nicer, kinder, the, the things that do correlate with long-term success. So that you're not doing a Google search later on in life, my husband annoys the hell out of me and different All things like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. My six foot four husband is a jerk. <laughs> exactly. Again, I think what you're talking about is really interesting when we think about the decisions that we make in our lives and the the factors that go into those decisions, a lot of the, the conversations that we have are about making decisions and how do we improve those decisions. And what you're saying is, in, in, at least in some of this dating stuff and probably a bunch of the other things that you're putting into your book is, let's use the right data to make those decisions as opposed to data that we think is right, these shiny attributes. Uh, and let's look at some of the really things that we know correlate to long-term success and, and all of these. I think that's fantastic. So Exactly. So like, what's the way to use your intuition in dating? You just like look at someone's face on a dating site. And if they look hot, you swipe right and try to get a date and try to say something witty or clever to get a date with them. And I'm saying, no, step back and say, look, follow, uh, you know, they, they've done now studies with tens of thousands of couples over many decades, what actually is going to make someone happy, pay attention to that and then now come back to the dating and, and don't just like rush into it with, you know, oh, that person's hot. Oh, that person has my initials. That person, <laughs> that person has a cool job. Like, you know, like that, that's like, that's kind of, if, if you don't step back and think that's how you're going to make your decisions. Uh, well, what, what should that be? So if you're going to swipe right, what, what are the best criteria that people should be using? So another interesting thing about the data is it's very actually hard to predict what makes a relationship work in general. So I say kind of casting a wider net is the best way to do it. And one thing they found is early on, if you have a connection with someone, which is hard to predict, that can last, that tends to predict you're going to have a connection years later. Mm. So I think, basically cast a wide net and look for a connection, even if it's not like you wouldn't expect it. The person's not the hottest person you've ever seen. They're not the height you would have imagined. They don't have the occupation you dreamed about dating when you were seven years old, but you feel a connection, go with that. So like cast a wider net, don't overemphasize the shiny traits that everybody's focused on. And then if you have a connection, go with it. And then Within that connection, the things that seem to correlate stronger are various psychological traits, like psychologists have done all these studies, a secure attachment style or growth mindset, uh, which you can actually take online. I always said, you know, for the heterosexual men, a lot of times your girlfriend wants you to take psychological quizzes when you just want to watch sports. And I said yep. the data set can actually do the quizzes because you can find out if she's a good match because these psychological traits do matter a lot. So if I'd say like the things that are overrated, shiny traits, and the things that are underrated are various psychological attributes uh, that do correlate with long-term success. Yeah. Your friend, Logan Yuri, uh, in, in her book about how to not die alone, you yeah. know, talks about the, I think she, she references the, the questions that you should talk about uh, early in a relationship to sort of bubble up some of these issues. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's um, behavioral grooves. We mix a lot of music discussion in with behavioral science. And I know that you've done some research on music and how our adult preferences are greatly influenced by the period in our youth. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about that research? Is that? Yeah, so there's this interesting question, what age do we get hooked on music? And it's been a little difficult to study because the traditional methods you've had to kind of bring people into a lab and ask them their favorite songs. And you usually have pretty small samples. You might have 60, one st famous study had 62 people is in psychological science. So I'm like, in this era of big data, we can do better at this. So I reached out to scientists at Spotify and they gave me data on the top 4,000 songs of men and women of every age. So, uh, you know, 34 year old men, 35 year old men, 36 year old men, same with women. And you see these really sharp patterns uh, where basically there's a huge bump. Uh, the biggest bump is for songs that came out for women. It's when they were 13 years old and men when they were 14 years old. 
So if a song came out when you were 13 as a woman, 14 for a man, you just see like down the line on Spotify, you're much more likely to still be listening to that throughout your life, which is earlier than I would have guessed. I would have thought, you know, a little bit, maybe early 20s, but kind of shows similar. It's interesting. It kind of seems to correlate with puberty, which also hits women a year earlier than men. So there's something about that early brain that you get hooked on life at an early age. And the, my favorite thing about writing that article is I wrote it for the New York Times and uh, my editor, who knows I'm a Bruce Springsteen fan, uh, called it the songs that bind instead of <laughs> yeah, the ties that bind. It's, it's a Springsteen yeah. song. <laughs> that is pretty fantastic. We talked to uh, Pablo Ripoles and Ernest Mast Herrero, who did some research on how music above many, many actually all other activities during COVID in increase euphoria. You know, it would help people feel better actually healing. And that when we talked to them directly, Ernest was quick to say his COVID playlist is mostly songs from his youth, that he's going, going back to those songs that he grew up with. I talked to a Spotify data scientist, Elizabeth Kim, and she said the same thing in the Spotify data. There's been a uh, people have moved to songs from youth, older songs during the COVID crisis, away from newer songs. There's something comforting about older songs during the crisis. So that, I think the data uh, bears that theory out. Really interesting stuff. Uh, there's something, I guess, soothing about uh, the songs of their youth, of people's youth. Yeah, I think it trans transports us back into the mindset that that era that we had and it probably more of that positive mindset from those times and it just you know we're, we're comforted by the status quo we're comforted by those things that are familiar and so those bring up that that music brings that emotion back up to the surface and i think the pablo and arnes research showed that was probably the best stress reliever at this time and i think what you're saying is Actually, the, the music, if we look at this, is probably more so if it was from those periods of our of our youth that really made that that impact on us around, as you said, puberty. That, that That's an interesting correlation there. Did you look by chance, and, and this is probably not, but did you look at outliers? I mean, is there any research that says, all right, so the vast majority of people, there's this peak over 13 and 14, but there were a few in some of that research where it was like, nope, that was like 30s and, and 20s and different things. Was there any? I didn't look at it, but I want to look at it because I am an outlier. Yeah. Uh, you know, Leonard Cohen was singing before I was born. Springsteen was definitely kind of big, uh, much earlier. Uh, a big Dylan fan, as I said, Paul Simon. Uh, you know, I think probably for me, my parents maybe had a big influence on me. And I'm yeah. also weird. I got into music late in life. Like now I'm a huge music fan. And I spent most of my day listening to music, but I didn't like music as a kid or teenager. So I don't know. I'm, it is interesting. It's, I guess area for further research. I'm one of those outliers as well, as Tim and I talk about all the time. I, you know, my big musical tastes are, are you know, when I was listening, if, if it was, you know, me at 14, I'd be jamming out to ACDC and Black Sabbath right now. Right. And, that's definitely not on my playlist most days. Um, it's still probably there every once in a while, but man, it's not definitely what I listen to on my my Spotify account. So I just found that, you know, I'm wondering if there was some commonality, like if there was some personality per, per, per element or if there was other mediating factors that played into this that you're looking at. So I don't know, it'd be really interesting. Another interesting thing about music and also that formative period is it seems from my memory of high school, like there's a personality trait of not liking what everybody else likes. Mm. Uh, that it, it, when I was in high school, Dave Matthews Band was the biggest thing. Yeah, All the cool kids were obsessed with Dave Matthews Band, tried to get tickets to the concerts, to their show. And then there was like a, a couple of kids who had like shirts, I hate Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> <laughs> they did not like I, Dave Matthews Band, which I think, to be fair, had to go beyond the music. Like the music yeah. could have been that horrible that your entire identity was about not liking Dave Matthews Band. And my guess is that that personality trait, if they'd been born in a different period, you know, when ACDC was big, they would have been. I hate ACDC. Yeah. Shirts. And when Bob Dylan was big, they would have said, I hate Bob Dylan. There's kind of a rebellious personality uh, that, likes that wants to like things that other people don't like that kind of 
uh, hates popular things just based on their popularity. Yeah. I, I got to say just a big shout out to Elizabeth Kim uh, for being a behavioral scientist at Spotify. I think that it's cool that they they hired her and that she's doing such a bang up job. So just, just a quick shout out to our buddy Elizabeth uh, on that. And uh, do people lie about music? Yeah. So I did a little research on this. There seems to be interesting gender differences where like Spotify, the data from Spotify seems to suggest that males and females have more similar musical tastes than would be suggested by say Facebook likes. Mm. So I think there are certain musicians who men, for example, wouldn't like to admit they like, it kind of goes back to with uh, the Seinfeld episode and how that played out on television that Jerry Seinfeld didn't want other people to know that he liked Melrose Place. And I think <laughs> right. like Katy Perry is really popular among men on Spotify. But if you look at Facebook, He's not so popular. And I think a lot of like maybe younger males don't want to say I like Katy Perry. They think that that's effeminate. Uh, so that's really, that's interesting. It, it goes to show just how like lying can come into every arena because there are so many pressures on us to act a certain way. And people always feel, you know, am I coming across as, you know, secure enough, rich enough, masculine enough, feminine enough. Uh, it's so hard for us to just, say who we are, what we like, what we enjoy, uh, we kind of, you know, there's so many areas where there's this tendency to, you know, put on a front. And I think the lying may also influence what we actually listen to. So how many people don't even, how many males don't allow themselves to get into Katy Perry because they feel that that's uh, not music that men should be listening to. You know, gender is another interesting area of kind of conformity, lying, these issues play out I say big time in uh, gender. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly someone who, when, uh, when I heard one track from a band that I previously had a negative idea about, I'll, I'll just say their name, Duran Duran. Okay, I like <laughs> howling like a wolf and all that kind of crap was just like blah blah blah. But then they come out with a track that just really connects with me. And it's like, man, that's just so fantastic. Oh, wait a minute. It's from Duran Duran. I can't, I can't really like that. You know, I have to actually <laughs> stop myself. And so I've, I've done that. I, I know the experience of actually saying, no, I'm not going to become a fan of the band, even though they had this one tune that just totally turned me upside down. I think there's a level of confirmation bias, right? We have a pre-held belief. And so then that influences everything that we take from that. So yes, I, I don't, you know, I have a belief about listening to Katy Perry music and that's not who I am. So even if I hear Katy Perry's music, I, it's like, oh, I put a different spin on that. And I will use my own example, Justin Bieber, right? So I have a, <laughs> I had a belief about Justin Bieber and his music and it wasn't until I was actually listening to, you know, I forget where it was. We were somewhere and it was being piped in music. And so I didn't know who was singing it. And I'm going, I like the song. This is a really, you know, good lyrics, snappy, all the stuff. And then Tim knows Ben, who I work with. Ben goes, yeah, that's Justin Bieber. And I go, uh. <laughs> and it was just like this immediate reaction to the song that I was just like, yeah, I like this. And then I was like, uh. And then I had to reexamine that and go, yeah. 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 I have this huge skepticism, like, sounds like you do, towards like teen heartthrobs, teen heartthrob musicians. So, you know, like when I was, I guess this was a little bit before high school, it was, there was one after another, Backstreet Boys, In Sync, Justin Bieber. And it's like, and, and I'm like, you know, great music is not something that you just have, you know, 13 year old screaming girls reacting to. But then I remembered the Beatles. We're built on 13 year old screaming girls. Yes, they were. Exactly. We're the greatest of all time. So, you know, so don't just because, you know, it has this kind of appeal to young teenage girls assume the music is not great music because it's certain the Beatles show it certainly can be. Yeah. Well said. Absolutely well said. We could spend another hour just on all of this, actually, but. Right we now, size stuff as well for another. <laughs> <laughs> I think we totally that. Yes, I'm sure we could. 
Seth, this was fantastic. Thank you. Your insights, A, they kind of blow your mind when you when you think about them. And B, they're fun. They're just absolutely fun. So thank you for coming on and joining us. And we we so appreciate it. Thanks, Tim and Kurt. Although I have my one joke that I use on every appearance, which is that you're you're complimenting the author of Everybody Lies. And there is no topic people compliment lie more about than I enjoyed this. I love your book. <laughs> oh no. Job. You're, you're so great. That's the number one on the list of lied about topics is that. So I want to see your Google searches. It's fraud. And then I'll really know how you thought about this. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, you can look at my playlist and see Cohen and Dylan and Paul Simon yeah. rising right to the top. Okay. Um, and I'll see Kurt inviting all his brilliant friends and stop inviting Tim. Uh, <laughs> over to our family dinners and outings. Yes. I'm sorry, Tim. You're, you're, you're shunned. Oh gosh. I'm sorry that I just didn't invite you to that again. I, I totally meant to. I really was going to. It must've just slipped my mind. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that was fun. It sure was, Kurt. There was so much content and there was so much to groove on that I really hope listeners head straight over to our grooving session in the next episode. And we want to thank you all for listening to our conversation with Seth. And I want to reiterate Tim's request. If you thought this was fun, just check out the next episode because it's our grooving session where Tim and I have even more fun talking about the cool topics we covered with Seth. More fun, more fun, more fun. Yeah, we also hope that you stop lying to yourself about why you're not leaving us a great review. <laughs> Just scroll down to the bottom of your listening app and tell us what you really think about behavioral groups. And for now, we hope you go out and listen to the next episode and then find your groove. <laughs>